Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thank you that you are the perfect judge. Uh, in your righteousness and repentance, we are made whole. Uh, and yet, even as hypocrites, God, you forgive us. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for Kevin as he speaks, uh, that you would give him strength and wisdom. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Good morning. Welcome to Aletheia. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. If I, I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Um, if you're looking for a seat, we've got a couple of seats here in the middle and a couple of seats up front. I promise we don't bite. The front row is just as uh, fun as the back row. Um, I know we have uh, an affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention, but we don't have to all sit in the back seats here. So um, only some of you guys got that joke. If you didn't grow up Baptist, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Although, if you grew up Methodist, we did it too. We just didn't have a cool alliteration called Backseat Baptists like the Baptists did. So, uh, anyway, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Um, we're, uh, as a church, uh, studying through um, the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. We're going to be all over the place this morning in Scripture. Um, there's a lot of important things that we need to kind of talk about and make sure that we fully understand what's going on. But we're going to start in uh, the book of Romans. And uh, last week, uh, we finished up chapter 1. Woohoo! So we only got 15 more chapters to go. So um, if, you, if you haven't been here or before, if this is your first time, um, or if you've missed a couple weeks and you, and you want to know exactly where we're at, um, feel free to hop on our website. Uh, we put the podcast up there weekly so that you guys can kind of follow along. I know a lot of you guys, if you're students, you tend to travel home and visit family members or life's busy and you tend to miss a Sunday. So if you want to kind of know, uh, like kind of progressively where, what we've been studying in the book of Romans, you can hop on our website and we've got the podcast up there available for download. And you can 
can listen to them at any time. Because in reality, um, the previous two weeks have kind of uh, been building on one another, and this week is a continuation of those uh, previous two sermons. But I, wanna, I want us to run back and look at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, this morning as we start, because it's going to, we need to understand that these two verses, if you've been here before, you've heard me say this, are, the, are kind of the linchpin or the theme verses for the entire book of Romans. Uh, these two verses are telling us why Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome and, and why he sent it to them. So let me read these two verses uh, to you. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you notice there in verse 16, that language, we saw some repetition of that same language this morning as Sam read our verses this morning. Now let me read verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? And so the, the theme of Paul's letter to the church at Rome is... I am not ashamed of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save and redeem his people. And I'm writing this letter to make you aware of that. I'm writing you this letter to, to make you aware of the fact that the gospel is the power and the means by which God has chosen to save the human race. That the human race is in need of a savior and someone to rescue them. And the gospel message is the vehicle that God will use to save and redeem his power. And I want us to notice something here. He says to everyone who believes, and then he mentions two separate groups of people. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now... It may not seem like a big deal to have those, those two kind of groups listed there in the scripture. It's just kind of, oh, you know, it's, it's something cultural that Paul is doing. But if you understand first century Rome, um, this is actually a pretty big deal because these two groups have some fairly massive cultural differences. And they tend to not get along very well. Jews specifically tended to look down on other cultures, seeing them as barbaric and haters of God. And so if you read throughout the Old Testament and even at times throughout the New Testament gospel accounts, you'll see that the Jews kind of stick their nose in the air when dealing with anyone that's not culturally Jewish. They, they see them as haters of God and deserving of God's wrath and they, they see them as uh, wicked and they see all the things that they might do as a culture and as a people group and they turn their nose up towards them and say, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. They're evil and wicked and God hates them. And this is important because we've spent the last two weeks at looking at the end of Romans chapter 1. And, the, and as we looked at the, 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 the text over the course of the last two weeks, what Paul had been saying is that the wrath of God is revealed to us and pointed at those who deny and reject God's existence and therefore deny and reject morality. And so Paul said said, you know, it doesn't really matter what cultural background you grew up in, that creation reveals to us God's power and attributes, and therefore man is without excuse in living his life in such a way as to not glorify God. That is, that is exactly what we've been talking about over the course of the last two weeks, and that man is guilty of rejecting God, whether you grow up in the jungles of the Amazon, or whether you grew up in the heart of Jerusalem right outside the temple, that all of mankind has enough information revealed to them to know that God exists. 
and therefore they are without excuse for rejecting him as their God and their king. And ultimately, we saw that this wrath culminates in God giving mankind over to their lusts. Typically, when we think of the wrath of God, we start thinking about these images that we've read in the Old Testament of God, you know, raining down fire or creating some sort of natural disaster or turning people over to their own devices so that they might be destroyed utterly. That's kind of where our mind tends to go. But Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that if God's wrath is pointed towards somebody, the way that we can know fully that his wrath is poured out on us is that he gives us over to our own desires and lusts. So the way this kind of happens then is that inside of mankind, every single one of us wrestle with this issue that God is the creator of the universe and yet we tend to want to worship anything other than him. And so we worship created things, idols as they're called throughout the scripture. And as we worship those things, they tend to kind of just snowball and grow and grow and grow. And for those of you guys in Florida, a snowball is this white thing. It's really cold. And if you roll it, it just gets bigger because the snow tends to stick to itself. I know you guys aren't familiar with what that is. But when you use that terminology, it means that our, our, our lusts... And our desires continue to grow and grow and grow until we find ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper in sin over the course of time. And so if you want to have this idea of like, what is God's wrath like? Think about your own sin and how that sin has progressed in your life. And when I frequently tell people that, that come to me for counseling and they're, they're broken over their sin and they're like, I just hate feeling this way. And I, I try to tell them every time, no. The fact that you're broken over your sin is evidence of God at work in your life. It is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit convicting you, drawing you to Him, drawing you to repentance. If you are in sin and don't feel guilty or ashamed or desire to repent over that, you are in a scary place. Because what the scripture says is that God's wrath is being poured out on you and he's giving you over to your own lusts and desires and passions that ultimately what ends up happening is that evil ends up reigning in our hearts and we worship things like sex we worship entertainment we worship people the we could literally if i asked you guys to just start throwing things out here and i had a whiteboard up here we could probably list a hundred things that people worship over time school family sports music we could just continue to list things over and over and over again and what the point that Paul was making at the end of Romans chapter 1 is not only do these deniers of God reject truth, but that they end up rejoicing in the sinfulness of others. So as you guys can tell, if you haven't been here over the last two weeks, you know, we've had a pretty fun hallmark moment studying the scriptures over the last couple of weeks. And yet, it's super important that we understand two things. One, Paul shares all of this information because it's true. And that if we don't take this seriously, we stand before God guilty and deserving of his wrath and condemnation. Now, Paul anticipates a problem with sharing this example, though, and, and explaining to to you know, his audience, hey, if you deny God, you're guilty, and it doesn't matter what your cultural background is, you're still deserving of God's wrath. He anticipates that there's going to be a group of people that are going to say yes and amen to that, 
and yet not realize their same need for the gospel, as he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And that group is the Jews, okay? Because they're a part of that group that Paul mentions in verse 16, right? He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and to the Greek. And yet, if we read the end of Romans 1, he's not really describing the Jewish people at all. And so, if you were culturally Jewish, right, you might be reading this letter and thinking, well, this doesn't describe me. I follow the law. My family knows God. I was circumcised on the eighth day as a young boy. I don't worship creation. Some cultures may not know God, but I'm Jewish. I'm part of God's chosen people. His wrath isn't focused on me because I know who God is. I'm not a denier of God. I'm not a denier of his truth. I'm not a denier of the fact that he's worthy of my honor and attention. And Paul in Romans chapter 2 is going to begin to challenge them that just because you know God does not mean his wrath is not directed towards you. And I want to share something with you before we look at the text this morning because I want you guys to think about this long and hard because most of you guys grew up in the south. And when I moved down here, I realized how vastly different the culture of the South was compared to where I grew up in Northern Virginia. And we were kind of on that, you know, you guys, I, I loved, you know, when I, the first time I ever visited North Carolina, and I had sweet tea and spit it back out because I felt like, you know, I was going to go into diabetic shock <laughs> from having it. And this lady goes, you're not from around here, are you? And I'm like, no, ma'am. And by the way, that's exactly how Brian and Ginger Gamble talk, if you've ever met them. That's the exact tone of their voice. So I'm sitting there, Brian's like, what, what's going on here, right? It's true, buddy, right? But I spent an entire year trying to fix that, that accent in my child after he spent a lot of time with you, okay? And so, but as I'm sitting there, she's like, yeah, we, we, we're, we're really proud of who we are down here. We love God and we love our sweet tea. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You know, and so one of the things like you kind of know about it, if you grew up in the South, right, it's known as the Bible Belt, right? That, that the culture of the South is that, that people go to church and they love God and they love their country. And here's, here's what's really fascinating to me. Is that in the South, I see a ton of similarities between the culture that many of you guys in this room grew up in and the Jewish religion, tra religious tradition. Right? Cultural Christians may say this, right? As they're reading Romans chapter 1. Well, of course, you know, like, atheists and those that don't know God re reject him. And, and they reject his law and they reject his, his morals. And they, you know, they, they might hate God. Or, 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 of course, God's wrath is focused on them because they don't worship God. But, but not me. I, I grew up going to church. My parents were Christians and so was my great-grandfather. And he helped start, you know, the Baptist church on the street corner. And I went to youth group as a kid, and I'm involved in student ministry in college. And I was married in the church and went through premarital counseling, and I attend church regularly. And the church goes on and on and on, and, and I love coming down here because I get to hear about all these things you do. And many of you guys, even in this room this morning, would either call yourselves Christians or know someone that would call themselves a Christian and yet I would submit to you that much of what Christianity consists of in the United States is actually the worship of therapeutic moralistic deism. Right? If you're not familiar with that term, it's a term coined by two sociologists. Uh, their names are Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. And in 2005, they did a study on people under the age of 25 in the United States and their religious views. And here's what they found. 
that 68% of youth in America believed in the existence of God. They believed that God wants people to be good. They believe that the goal of life is to feel good. By the way, we're talking about 68% of the country has these beliefs in common. Not just some of these beliefs, they have these beliefs in common. There were more than this 68% that held to some of these beliefs. That they believe that the goal of life is to feel good and that God isn't super involved in our lives and we don't bother seeking Him unless we need something. And then lastly, they tend to believe this, that good people go to heaven when, they're die, when they die and Disclaimer, guess what they believe about themselves? They're pretty good. That they're pretty good people, that there may be some people in the world that aren't so good, but that they're pretty good people. And here's the question I would submit to you. Is this biblical Christianity? Having a kind of moral compass and basic belief in God, trying to be a good person and not denying the existence of God, does that therefore make you okay in the eyes of God? Does what Paul says about the wrath of God being pointed towards man therefore become nullified because you have a basic belief in God? Guys, the answer is no. And look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know what I love about verse 1? Is that Paul places literally every human being into his argument. Okay? Because the, 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 the attitude of the Jewish religious leaders would have been, hey, okay, this is good. Like, Paul, I'm on board with what you're saying. You know, like, yes, God's wrath is definitely pointed at those deniers of God. Yes, God's wrath fully involved in And Paul says, well, hold on, I'm not done yet. If you have ever passed judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Is there anybody in this room that can honestly say here this morning that they've never judged another person? Yeah, I didn't think so. Not a single hand goes up. Right? Because the moment one of your friends is gossiping about you, or the moment your mom and dad has said something to you that you don't like, or the moment your professor has done something you don't like, or the moment your boss has done something you don't like, or the moment you've been treated poorly by a waitress or a waiter and you're ticked off at them, you're judging that person. That you have concocted inside of your mind a standard of how that person is supposed to be living, and they're not meeting that standard. And so to the religious, here's what Paul says. You're the same as the people I was just talking about. It just looks a little different. That you stand condemned before God. Now, I would imagine that some of you guys are hearing me right now and right, you're saying that you're sitting here saying, oh, Kevin's saying that I'm deserving of the wrath of God. But, it, but if you're like me as you were reading this text, you're, you're probably sitting there thinking, I, I, I don't really believe this. Like, come on, Paul, be reasonable. I grew up in the church. I go to church. I love God. I know him. I don't murder people. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not evil. I don't hate God. I'm not heartless. I'm not a murderer. 
I can list all these things that you're not. We start comparing ourselves to some of the wickedness of the world. And it's easy to start saying, hold up, I'm not that bad of a person. Come on now. Right? You know, like the, the people that are beheading people on TV, yeah, I get that. The people that are blowing themselves up and trying to kill people, I, I get that. Those people are evil. The people that are, you know, m- molesting small children, like I get that. They're the evil and the wicked, but, I, but I'm not that bad. I'm not, I'm not committing those level of atroci- atrocities. And as I was reading this text, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, come on. Right? I'm, not, I'm not, you know, think of all the things that Paul has listed there at the end of, of Roman, Romans chapter 1, right? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And I read that list, I'm like, I'm not that bad. Come on, I mean, like, maybe every once in a while I'm ruthless. But, you know, I wouldn't, like, describe myself as a ruthless person. Maybe every once in a while I struggle with envy, but I'm not like a covetous person. I don't envy people all the time. And then I got to thinking about an example of this of when I was in high school. I think this fits exactly with what Paul is talking about here. So, as most of you guys know in the room that there's a universal truth about human beings, and that's that males between the ages of 11 and 18 are stupid. And, and if you fit that bill here this morning, I apologize to you. You will grow up one day. It's okay. Now, so me and my buddies in high school, you know, we lived in a small town. There wasn't a ton to do. And when there tends to not be a ton to do, um, young boys with testosterone flowing tend to find stupid things to do with that free time. And so what we would do is we would, we would go out on, on nights and weekends and we'd just drive around and, you know, we would tip porta-potties over. Yes, it is as stupid as it sounds, right? Uh, and if any of you guys don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about those, like, blue containers that you go to the bathroom in when you're at, like, a construction site or, you know, at a county fair or whatever it may be. Okay. So, you know, my friends and I would go out every once in a while and, and do this, and uh, my junior year of high school, uh, the cops found out about it and uh, called our parents. And my dad was furious with me and he came down really hard on me and, and, and in the midst of that right was I guilty of tipping porta potties over with my dumb high school friends yes guess where my mind went when I was in that conversation with my father well dad I've got friends in high school who are out drinking and partying and drinking and driving on the weekends what I've done isn't as bad as them why are you so mad at me I immediately began to deflect in the midst of my own sin onto the wickedness of others instead of dealing with the reality of what I'd really done. I'd excused my sin because it wasn't as sinful as what others had done. And here was the reality, and this is the hard part, right, because I need to swallow this. I wish I could go back in time and talk to my 16-year-old self and say, dude, you were tipping over and causing damage to other people's equipment and property, causing damage and expenses to them. That you were creating probably, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars of damage to other people's equipment. You probably could have gone to jail if they had added it all up for a significant amount of time. And they could prove that you had done it. Guys, here's the reality. Either you sin or you don't. 
trying to excuse the level of your sin is like saying this, I'm kind of failing my class. Right? And some of you students in here, I've heard that before. You know, it's like, a, like it's three weeks into the semester or five weeks into the semester. I'm like, hey, how's class going? Oh, I'm kind of failing one of them. What does that mean? Kind of, kind of failing? Do you have an F? Well, yeah, okay, you're failing. Right? You're, you're not kind of failing. You are. You are failing the class currently. You may be able to pull that grade up, but currently you are failing that class. Right? This is an issue of standards. Right? When we're talking about sinfulness, we're talking about it being an issue of standards and whose standards matter. Right? In, in my porta potty example, it was the standards of the government of the state of Virginia. Which is not really a state, it's a commonwealth. Sorry, Derek, where are you at? There you go. Thank you, buddy. That their standards were, hey, you're destroying someone else's property, this is against the law. It doesn't matter if you view it as not being as bad as what some of your classmates are doing, it's still against the law. And God's standard is the standard by which we should judge ourselves, not by our own standard. Even though Paul's example is, hey, if you ever judge somebody by your own standard, you're actually revealing your own sinfulness. The problem is we aren't going to like God's standards, right? Consider, consider some of the following examples with me. Will you throw up Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 for me? This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus talking to the crowd, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And let's stop there for a second. Most of you guys are in here this morning like, I'm not a murderer. Good. Whew, okay. Right, look at what Jesus says next. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Guilty. Right, here we have the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not murder. Right, and then we see Jesus says, you don't really understand what God was saying in that moment. Right, this, is, this is the standard, right? Because God cares about not the action, he cares about the heart. Throw up Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 for me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Throw up Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 and 44 for me. Did I not give you that one? Forgive me, Amy. Then I'm going to go there really quick in my own Bible because I still want you guys to hear it. Matthew 5 verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can tell you right now that what I just read right there is not something we do well in America. Because I watch the news. Right, that God's standard is a lot different than your standard. And that God's standard is ridiculously high and none of us meet it. Yet many of us and our neighbors live like the religious of Paul's day, believing we are okay while condemning ourselves with our own judgments. 
Let me give you an example. Because I want you to think about the last time you judged somebody or thought about someone that you, you saw doing something that you didn't like. Jake, who's in my community group, taught this past week, and he shared this beautiful example, right? He's like, you know, I consider myself to be really kind of patient and gracious towards people most of the time and really, really loving towards them. But because when I was younger, my parents got a divorce and my dad had committed adultery as part of that relationship, I really struggle with that particular sin. And he's like, I have this good buddy of mine who I really, really love, and he's getting a divorce. And I'm finding it really, really hard to love him and still be his friend and not judge him. Why? Because he set this standard that he views as being more sinful. And yet Jake's whole point was, if I read Matthew chapter 5, I'm guilty of the very things that he's guilty of. Maybe not to the same degree, but I'm still guilty of them. Guys, the reality of our lives, whether you grew up in the church or not, are this. Third James chapter 2 verse 10 up there for me. This is what God has to say in regards to the law. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become what? Accountable for all of it. Those that culturally know about God and those that don't are in the same place. Worthy of a holy and just God's judgment and wrath. And as I said to you guys a couple weeks ago, God's wrath is not a bad thing because it's always pointed towards wickedness and evil. The problem is, is you don't want to admit that you are wicked and evil. It has nothing to do with God's wrath and everything to do with how about how you view yourselves. And so as Paul's been laying out this argument and saying, hey, Greeks, Romans, you have grown up not knowing who the God of the Bible is, but you are without excuse. You are rejecters and haters of God because God has revealed himself to you in his creation, right? And the Jews reading this letter would be like, yes, amen, thank you, Paul. We've been saying that for years, absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. And Paul says, wait a minute, you're involved in this too. Because you judge on the basis of morality, and yet you do not even follow the own judgments you pronounce on people. That you transgress the very pronouncements you make. And look what he says in verses 4 and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's just said that we are worthy of judgment because our lives don't match up to the standard in which we hold others to. And then he says, why do you do this? Why do you continue to live your life the way that you do and yet continue to judge others the way that you do? Do you think that you are any different just because you have the scriptures? Do you think that you're any different because you grew up in the church? Do you think that you're any different because you know who God is? Do you assume the kindness and the mercy that God shows you and others is for nothing? Guys, here's the reality of something we need to understand about ourselves. The moment you and I sin, 
we are in direct rebellion to the creator of the universe. Do you know that on federal law, if you commit treason or rebel against the United States, what can happen to you? You can be killed. Right? Our country has decided that if you commit rebellion against the government, you are worthy to be punished by death. Right? God says in his word that, that those that rebel against him are worthy of his wrath. And yet it doesn't happen immediately. Because otherwise, none of us would be sitting in this room. Right? God could have just wiped the human race out and been like, I'm done with this, I'm done with these guys, I'm over with it. I'm sick and tired of the rebellion. I'm sick and tired of their stiff necks. I'm tired of the way they don't honor me and know me. And yet God chooses throughout the course of the totality of Scripture, Old Testament and New, to be patient and long-suffering with human beings. And yet what I see over and over again is people, especially those within the church, see God's kindness and lack of action in revealing his wrath towards us as him giving you license to do whatever you want. And what God is really doing in his patience and his kindness and his long-suffering for you is drawing you to repent of your sin and turn to him. Just because God does not punish people immediately for sin, the religious and the non-religious, does not mean that his wrath is not real. God's slowness to punish sin directly does not mean that he doesn't care. And unrepentance over sin and a failure to recognize who God really is only means you're storing up more wrath for yourself. Think about what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9 as he's writing this letter to the churches who are kind of dispersed throughout the land. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? God withholding wrath and judgment is him giving an opportunity for sinful men and women to repent of sin, not giving you a license to continue to sin. And so here we have these two groups, right? Those indulging in their desires without glorifying God. Those would be the ones that we see in Romans chapter 1, right? And we would call that licentiousness. I don't believe in God, I don't know God, I don't want to follow God, I reject God, and I'm going to live and worship and do whatever I want. They're deniers of God. As Paul says, they're haters of God. But here you have this second group, you have the religious who acknowledge God, but if you are in here this morning and you feel like, I feel like Kevin might be talking about me, and I don't understand why it's such a big deal. Here's the problem with cultural Christianity and American religious institutions the way that it's been set up. Cultural Christianity and religion acknowledges God, but it actually sees no need for him because they think they can follow the law. And so you deny God just in a different way. You're self-righteous. 
Right? Those that deny God find their righteousness in what they believe and what they want, yet those that are self-righteous agree with the standard that God has set, but actually believe that they can keep it when they, in reality they cannot. And Paul's plea to both groups, the Jews and the Greeks, is the same. Repent. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Admit that you are sinful. Admit that you don't worship God as God. Admit that you don't perform to his standards. Admit that you worship creation rather than creator. And beg upon him for mercy and forgiveness. Then he says this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now I'm going to say something controversial here in just a minute, but it is what the text teaches, and I'm going to need you guys to, to slow, to rush to judgment, and let me fully kind of understand what Paul is saying here. So let me say it and then finish before you go crazy, okay? Look at verse 6 with me closely. All right, let me read it to you. He will render to each one according to his works. God judges us on the basis of our works. Now I know immediately that's a red flag to some of you guys, okay? And I'm, I'm glad that that pops up as a red flag to me because there needs to be some context and some understanding to what I mean by that, right? Because some of you guys are immediately like, whoa, 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 what about Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For I have been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. It is a gift of God, right? So that no man should boast. And I say yes and amen, right? I, I don't believe that Paul is gonna be contradicting himself. Right, that your works will not save you. But the reality is this, that God does judge based on the works in our life. Right? Look at Romans 6.23 with me. Right? Some of you guys have this verse memorized, especially if you were in Awanas. Right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Meaning, when we see that word wages, wages means what you've been paid for the work you've done. Right? So for those of you guys that get, have a job here in the Gainesville area, your, your place of employment pays you a wage for working for them. It's what you deserve based upon the work that you've done. And so what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 6 is, is God gives you the wages you deserve based upon the way you live your life. And the wages of sin or what you deserve is what? Death. Now notice how Paul doesn't say in the second half of verse 23, but for the wages of those that do good and love God is eternal life. What does he say? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I mean that Paul's not trying to contradict what he says in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. He's basically saying this, that these two groups of people, the, the, the self-seeking self-love, worship of creators, deniers of God, do not obey truth, they obey unrighteousness and slavery to sin, and those that are also religious and self-righteous, they do the same. 
And they're storing up wrath and fury for themselves. But those that seek glory and honor and immortality honor God and obey his commands and will ultimately receive the, the free gift of eternal life. And that the first group faces tribulation and trial while the second group is going to face glory and honor. And this goes both for the Jew and the Greek because God shows no partiality. Meaning whether, whether you grew up in there. So there's, a, there's this attitude in the South that the South is better than everywhere else. Right, just think about SEC football. Right, you guys think that SEC football is the pinnacle of college football. I think you guys have one team in the top t- 10. Excuse me, Georgia's there. And who have they played? Right? They did completely blow out a team at home that you guys beat on a Hail Mary a couple weeks ago. But the reality is, is there's, this, there's this attitude in the South... Like, we, we've got our stuff together. We're more moral than the rest of the country. We love God. We've got everything together. Even saying that out loud, did it sound prideful? God says that tribulation is facing for the Jew and also for the Greek. It's facing for the religious and the non-religious because God shows no partiality. And so wait a minute, so how do we kind of reconcile how I'm going to be judged for my works then? Because God in his judgment is just and he will judge you according to your works. Your works will either reveal one of two things about you. Self-seeking or God's glory being sought. I've got some bad news. Your works and my works reveal one thing to you and I. We're self-seeking. Whether you're religious or irreligious, you're a lover of self and a hater of God. Might look different, but the conclusion is still the same. If you believe that you can earn God's favor by your own performance, you are a lover of self and self-seeking. And what Paul says to you here is that what is being stored up for you is the wrath of God. Whether you find yourself in the Roman one camp where you're a denier of God and you're licentious and you're, you're a hater of good, and you live your life how you want, you're storing up wrath, or whether you're religious and a believer in God and you're self-righteous and you deny your need for God by your actions and not by your words, God will judge you based on your works. Guys, here's the reality. Every single person in this room stands underneath of the judgment of God, and guess what it says? Guilty. Myself included. I don't care what background you grew up. I don't care how many times a week you went to church. I don't care which non-Christian CDs you burned at camp over the summer when you were a kid. I don't care if you have accountability software downloaded on your computer. I don't care how many devotions you do. I don't care how much scripture you have memorized. I don't care if you have pictures of Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther up on your wall of your house instead of your favorite movies. That if you understand what Paul is saying here, everyone is guilty. 
the religious and the non-religious, the Jew and the Greek. And God judges based on that work and says, you deny me, therefore my wrath is pointed at you. It's bad news, guys. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's true. If we're honest with who we know ourselves to really be, it's true. You and I, no matter what background we come from, according to Paul's standards, stand condemned in God's wrath. So, so what hope is there? Maybe, maybe, and this is, this is the thought, and this is what therapeutic moralistic deism teaches you. This is what many of you guys walk into Gainesville believing. I'm always shocked at how many of you guys think you're saved when you arrive in Gainesville as students and you're not. Because here's what you believe. You've been taught that God forgives, and he does. You've been taught that God loves you, and he does. He displayed that in Christ. Right? But you think this about yourself and your own sinfulness. You say, well, yes, I am a sinner, but, but God's going to judge the people that are really wicked, but... Christ, Christ died, and so I'm forgiven. And I can live kind of how I want and do what I want. Because I find everything kind of based on this forgiveness that the church told me is that I was forgiven and loved. And it's true. It is scriptural truth that you are forgiven and loved. But what God is building to, and this is what you don't understand... And this is my prayer for you every morning when I'm praying in my office that, that God might use me to help clearly articulate and display this to you. That God is judging on the basis of works and your works declare you as guilty and worthy of God's wrath. But many of you walk in here and believe because you go to church or you're involved with a campus ministry or you meet people for discipleship time or you read your Bible every morning or you're in prayer that God's okay with you. That is not why God is okay with you. The reason God is okay with you is because when he judges you and I, if you are in Christ, he judges you based on the works of Jesus Christ, not your own. That when he looks at you, he says, Kevin, you have nothing to bring to the table. Nothing. Your rags are filthy. Right, as he talks about in the Old Testament, when we display our sacrifices and our lives before God, they're like minstrel rags. Pretty gross. That when God looks at you and I, he sees nothing but rebellion. He sees a stiff-necked people that deny him. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. We're deniers and haters of God. Maybe not in word, but always in action and application. And yet, what Paul is going to be building to throughout the book of Romans is yes, this is who you are. But Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He healed people. He performed miracles. He loved people. He taught people how to rightly view the scripture. What did I do this morning when I started talking about our own sinfulness? I went to the very words of Christ so that you and I would, might recognize how wicked we are. And then God in his mercy and his love for you and I sent his son to the cross. Guys, you want to know how I always know whether someone is really a follower of Jesus or not? When I'm doing evangelism and I'm talking to somebody and they're, reli they're, they're religious and I know they've grown up in the church, I just say, why did Jesus go to the cross? 
if their answer is anything other than to absorb the wrath of God for my sin and to give me his righteous good standing because of his good works, then then you've missed something. I get all sorts of answers when I ask that question. Why did, why did Jesus die on the cross? Uh, he wasn't liked. The Jews hated him. He was some sort of political martyr. They might even say something like he died for my sins but not fully understand what that means. God judges based upon works. Here's the question you need to ask yourself this morning. Is God judging me based upon my own work or is he going to judge me based on Christ's? If you want to bring your own works to the table, I can promise you one thing, guys. Wrath. Tribulation. Whatever terminology you want to pull out of Romans 1 and 2 that we've read so far. And yet the good news is that same God sent his only son to absorb his wrath on your behalf. And not only does he absorb the Father's wrath towards you for your sinfulness and for mine, but then he gives you his righteous standing with the Father. And you go from being an enemy of God to a son or daughter of God. You receive an inheritance. You will spend eternity in glory worshiping and honoring him and knowing him. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. You will spend eternity rejoicing in the fact that you know the creator of the universe and that he is your God and king and you will know for sure that he is in his rightful place in your heart. You are forgiven and known that God is both just and judge but he's also merciful and forgiver. But guys, the way is narrow. The only way to God is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way to God is through the works of Christ, not your own. I pray that this does two things for you this morning. If, you, if you've grown up in the South and you've been overcome by religion, that God is using this this morning to smack you across the face and free you from it. Eat, eat, the, the hardest thing for me right now is that previous generations, right, uh, most of us in this room are younger, right, we look at previous generations and they say, they taught legalism, they're so legalistic. And in our effort, right, to push back against legalism, we still miss the gospel, we, we go from placing all of our value in our works to licentiousness. And yet using just enough religion sprinkled in to excuse our sin. And then some of us here this morning grew up in environments where we don't understand a life outside of legalism. Because that's what we've been taught. It's what we've known. Guys, the gospel frees you from religion. Christ died so that we might be freed from self-righteousness, self-seeking glory and religion. And that we would just be able to do one thing, live for God. Live to his glory. 
live, to, live for the glory of his name, his renown, and his kingdom. So I pray that first and foremost, that if you find yourself in that place this morning, that God will remove the shackles of religion from you and then enslave you instead to Christ. But I also pray that some of you guys that maybe even know the theological truths of what I'm talking about this morning, you're like, yeah, I agree with that. Christ died in my place. I get that. But you live your life in such a way that you don't believe that, that God would for you to start doing so. Because there's going to come judgment one day, right? And sometimes I hear this. My grandfather used to say this all the time. Like, what are you going to say to God when you get to the pearly gates, right? And I, I don't know if that's exactly what it's going to look like, right, in pop culture, right? Like Paul standing there in front of some golden gates and, you know, there's clouds around and there's this guy with a long beard because apparently that's what God looks like even though we see in the scripture that God is spirit. Right? One of my favorite stories of all time is, like, I was with, with my pastor on campus doing evangelism and we're talking to this guy and my pastor's like, well, what do you believe about God? And he's like, well, I think God's kind of like this guy and, and up, in, up in the clouds, and he's just kind of stroking his beard. And he goes, hmm. And then he looks at me, and he's like, hmm. My pastor goes, no, that's Father Time. He doesn't exist, right? But we have this kind of view that, like, when we get there one day, right, and we stand before the judgment seat of God, and God asks, right, right, how should, how should I judge me, or, or what basis, right, what works do you have to bring before me, right, our answer can only be one thing. I bring to you Christ's righteousness on my behalf. I have nothing to bring to you except the righteousness of my Lord and Savior who died for me on the cross and rose again from death. I have nothing else to offer. And so that if you find yourself, right, in practice, beating yourself up over not having the right kind of quiet times, right, not, not being Christian enough, right, because inevitably a lot of you guys are involved in ministry in some ways, right, and you always have this person within your ministry that you look at them and you're like, man, that person's way more spiritual than I am. That person's way more holy than I am. You're using the wrong standard. Find yourself in awe, not of your discipler or someone within the context of your ministry, but of your Savior. Find yourself in the works and all of the work of Jesus Christ. How he, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant by putting on human flesh and submitted himself to the most horrible death that you could possibly imagine. Death on a cross. Find yourself in awe that the God of the universe, one person of the Trinity, would submit himself to that so that you might live and know the Father. We're going to take communion here in just a moment, right? And what we're doing every week when we take communion, right, is we are identifying that we believe that we are accepted and declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That his flesh and his blood were poured out for us so that we might be forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God. So if you're here this morning, you're, you're here because a friend brought you or you don't even know why you're here, right? And I would say this, that you're not here by accident, right? God doesn't make accidents. Right? You're here this morning because God wanted you to hear his word and know that he loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you. But if you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not a Christian, please don't take communion. Right? Not because we don't love you or we don't want you to have some food. I think we have some food still hanging around here. Can we give a hand to the people that made pancakes and stuff this morning? By the way, there's people cook for you every week. Right? 
but that when we take communion, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are saying something. You are saying that, God, I am so thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for me. And instead of wallowing in self-pity over your sin, you rejoice that that sin has been paid for in Christ and that you would repent of your sin and that you would believe that God has forgiven you in Christ, that you can walk forward today in obedience to him. So we're going to take some time to pray. We're going to take some time to reflect. And we're going to take some more time to worship and glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is worthy. Let's pray. I thank you for your word. Thank you that it tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. One of the ways that I've always been mesmerized as I read this scripture is because as I read it, I know it to be true, and yet oftentimes I don't want to hear it, but it's what I need to hear. The world tells me what I want to hear. Your word tells me what I need to hear. And I pray that every one of us in this room this morning would surrender. That we would either surrender our licentiousness or we would surrender our self-righteousness and that we would surrender instead to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we would know that there is no other way by which man can be saved than by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. And that we would worship and honor you because of that. are so good. Father, thank you for your son. Holy Spirit, move in us. Convict us of our sin and please grant us repentance so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. God, thank you for the work that you are always doing in the life of this church and churches all over this world drawing people to yourself. I love you. Thank you for this church and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Thank you guys.